Philippians chapter 3. Let's begin in verse 1 this evening. And brethren, let us hear God's Word. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision, which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. May the Lord bless the reading of this precious word to our hearts this evening. Well, brethren, it has been a blessed, blessed Lord's day. For us, I trust it has been for you, and as we come to this passage tonight, I pray the Lord will richly encourage and strengthen our hearts in a truth that I know we are all familiar with, but one that we cannot hear often enough. While all Scripture is inspired of God and profitable, certain portions of it seem to have a majesty, a depth, uh, and a usefulness, if I can use that word, to the Lord's people that, it's, that exceed other portions. At least it seems that way to my limited understanding. Paul's extraordinary statements recorded here in chapter 3 of Philippians comprise one of those remarkable passages which proves to be a never-ending source of encouragement and exhortation for the Lord's people in every age. This is a wonderful and a deep fountain to drink from regularly. And it is a passage that I like to return to fairly frequently. So this won't be the only time I'll preach from it. But there are several things here this evening that I think would be good for us to dwell upon. <clears throat> only the gospel of God's grace by faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Any mixture of human works into the gospel destroys the very nature of the salvation wrought by Christ on behalf of His people. As Paul wrote in Romans 11:6, And if by grace, then is it no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then is it no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. 
until he met Jesus Christ, Paul was convinced that he was right with God by his religious works. He gives us his testimony here in this blessed passage to show the Philippians and to show us that even our very best works are wholly inadequate to accomplish the righteousness that God requires. Now let's consider what Paul means when he declares that he counts all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus. God willing, we want to open up this passage under these heads. First, Paul's exhortation and warning against works righteousness. Secondly, Paul's reasons for a false hope in works righteousness. And finally, Paul's rejection of works righteousness. Okay? Be clear what the theme is this evening. Now, let's consider Paul's exhortation and warning against works righteousness. <clears throat> we'll begin considering this exhortation at the beginning here of chapter 3. Paul begins this chapter urging the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ. And brethren, that is the only never-ending source of joy for any human being. The Lord Jesus Christ. And not simply rejoicing in certain facts about Christ. I'm not setting those apart. I'm, I'm not being uh, uh, foolish enough to say that propositional truth isn't absolutely vital. But what I'm saying is the truth of God made real in our hearts by our union with Christ in the Holy Spirit. Where the truth of God becomes that by which we live. Rejoice in the Lord. He is the object of our faith. He is the fountain of our joy. If we properly understand the gospel. If we properly understand what it means to be a Christian. Now this is a wonderful and a blessed commandment for the children of God. And that is what it is. It, it isn't a suggestion. Uh, this is not an option. <laughs> He's not uh, saying, well, we'll try this out. And unfortunately, sometimes we read the Scriptures that way. That's one of the reasons, if you'll forgive me for sounding harsh, I, I don't intend to, it's one of the reasons I hate those billboards that say, try God. As if He were just another appliance or another avenue that, that we might just try. No. Rejoice in the Lord. That's a command. <clears throat> That's a wonderful imperative. Now, this is very important for us to lay a hold of. Because this is a difficult command to obey when we're going through difficult times when we're going through trials, fiery trials. Rejoicing in the Lord sometimes seems very far away from our thinking. And that unfortunately is because we often look to the way our circumstances are going for our joy. 
if it's going this way, I'm happy. If it goes this way, and it goes against me and 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 uh, chafes me, I'm not happy. But that's just why this is so important, because Paul is writing this from prison. Paul is writing from the inside of jail to those on the outside and saying, Rejoice! Rejoice! Rejoice in the Lord! <laughs> he was awaiting a trial that might have brought his, his own death penalty. And yet he could say, and most likely, if we understand history, that doesn't tell us this in this passage, but if we understand history and, and the way things went back at that time, he was most likely chained between uh, two guards when he wrote this. Here are the very symbols of his being a prisoner sitting right next to him. And yet he is dictating a letter to those on the outside that says, Rejoice! Rejoice in the Lord! Well, now, he was either a lunatic or he had a hold of something. He was not governed. His joy was not governed by the way his providences seemed to be going. His joy was governed by his knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is vital. For hearts opened by God's saving grace, as Paul himself knew, Learning to rest and rejoice in Christ in the midst of suffering is a most blessed and important lesson for our lives as Christians. Now Paul's theme of rejoicing in Christ runs throughout the epistle to the Philippians and he in this verse seems to take delight in reminding them of this vital aspect of their Christian walk. Can you see him smiling as he's, ch as he's chained and saying... Rejoice! Rejoice. He declares that it is not at all grievous for him to remind them of this essential fact of the Christian life. Christians are to rejoice in Christ in all circumstances. And as Paul reminds the Philippians, and us as well, it's safe for him to do that. Safe for him to do that. We need it. We need to be reminded of this regularly. Well, that's his exhortation. Rejoice in the Lord. Now, he gives an admonition here. <clears throat> he says, beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. Paul follows his exhortation to joy with a very solemn admonition regarding false teaching. The word translated beware means to take heed, to contemplate, or to consider a thing. In other words, he's drawing their minds, obviously, to uh, very seriously consider this uh, sober warning. These false teachers are pandering a false way of righteousness that always has been and always will be destructive to the soul. Beware of dogs. Now this may be distressing to some of you, but for some reason dogs are never portrayed in a favorable light in the Scriptures. If you're a dog lover, I'm not trying to... Uh, 
offend anyone, <laughs> but it is a fact. God's Word never speaks favorably of, of dogs in His Word or in, in the Scriptures. The Bible constantly portrays dogs as having disgusting eating habits, often devouring human corpses. They're also described as traveling in packs and howling. What is unfit for human consumption is often cast to the prowling dogs. So while dogs are thought of as man's best friend in our culture, very often treated on the same level as people, calling people dogs in the Scripture was to speak of them in the lowest social levels. And this is what Paul is doing. Paul is using strong language about these false teachers. He says, beware of dogs. They're like packs, prowling, devouring. And their doctrine devours the souls of men. He is telling the Philippians to watch out for to take proper notice of these prowling and howling packs of dogs who come devouring the Lord's people. The Jews often call the Gentiles dogs. So it's very interesting that now Paul, the Jew, takes the term that was often used for Gentiles and turns it around and sets it upon Jewish opponents who are coming into the Christian congregations and confusing God's people about how to be righteous before God. Beware of the dogs. He says, beware of evil workers. Those who bring false doctrines among the Lord's people are evil workers. And we have lost that in our day. Now it is true. Among the Lord's people, until the Lord returns, we're not going to agree on every doctrine. I wish it were the case. I do not like separation from brethren. There are things that we can agree on and things that we can disagree on. But brethren, we cannot, we cannot, for the sake of unity, ever, ever, back off of the doctrine of justification by faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ and the imputed righteousness of the Lord Jesus. Amen. We may disagree about many things and not call certain brethren evil workers, but when someone comes peddling a different way to be right with God, brethren, they are dogs and evil workers according to the Scriptures. Amen. I love my brethren in Christ. We may not always agree on certain issues of baptism or the time of the Lord's return or head coverings or all of these types of things where we might find some ground to disagree. But brethren, the heart of the gospel and the imputed righteousness of Christ is never something to be negotiated. And there we have to draw a line in the sand. Now the Jews who were confident that they were right with God because they kept God's law, prided themselves in their good works. However, Paul doesn't hesitate to call them evil workers. Now, once again, Paul is being very ironic here. 
It's easy for us to miss it. But the Jews thought of themselves as right with God because of their law keeping. Now they're coming in and confusing the Lord's people, particularly the Philippians here, and telling them that to be right with God, they needed to keep the law. And Paul is calling their law keeping evil work. Why? Isn't it good to do what God's law says? Yes. But not as the basis for our justifying righteousness. The Lord Jesus denounced such, denounced such self-righteousness when He said in Matthew 23, 15, Woe unto you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye compass sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he is made, ye make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. Number one, he calls them hypocrites. And number two, he says they're hell-bound. They are children of hell. Why? Because they are trusting in themselves and their works righteousness before God. And he says, in your zeal, you travel land and sea to get someone to lay hold of your doctrine with you. And then he's twice a child of hell. He was on his way to hell before, but now he thinks he's right. He's right with God because he's keeping the law of God. He was deceived to begin with. He's doubly deceived now because he thinks, oh, now I'm right with God because I'm going down the rule list. Deception and destruction. Paul says they're evil workers. Amen. Thirdly, he speaks of the concision. He says, beware of the concision. The Jews rightly understood circumcision as the mark of being a member of God's covenant community. God instituted circumcision. At its time, in its place, it was an important mark, a sign of the glorious covenant of God. However, in their darkness, they considered the mark itself to have meritorious value, as some people today think of baptism or the Lord's Supper as having a meritorious value. Paul calls them the concision. In other words, the word there means the mutilation. Once again, he's using very Strong language. They're dogs. They're that howling pack devouring God's people. They are evil workers rather than righteous because of their works. And beware of that mutilation. Even though at one time was a valued sign of God's covenant, as far as Paul was concerned, it was simply an act of mutilation when considered a part of being righteous before God, meriting righteousness before God. Circumcision once symbolized one's covenant relationship with God, but that is now fulfilled in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ.
Now let's consider Paul's declaration. We've looked at his exhortation and his warning. Verse 3 says, For we are the circumcision, which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. God's true Israel, the true circumcision, are those who have been circumcised in heart. That's vital for us to lay hold of in our day. Those that have been circumcised in heart by the Holy Spirit's regenerating work. This was something that God promised in the Old Covenant as He looked by His prophets toward the New Covenant. What was wrong with Israel? God complained through His prophets, Oh, that they had a heart! To keep my laws. What was their problem? Their hearts. And what is your problem? Your heart. God says, I will give them a heart to walk in my ways. One of the promises, the glorious promise of the new covenant is I will give you a new heart and put my spirit within you. And you will walk in my laws. You will walk in my ways. That's God's Israel. So he begins with the identity of God's true Israel. Now once again, look at the irony of what Paul is saying. He's turning the Jewish mind upside down here. He's speaking to these Gentile believers... And he's saying, we, me the former Pharisee, and you Gentiles, we're God's Israel. Now that would infuriate his Jewish opponents, of course. But he's saying, we are his Israel. The true Israel worships God by the power of the Holy Spirit and not in the power of the flesh and self-righteousness. We do not come as the Pharisee who stood and said, as it, in the Scriptures say, he prayed with himself. Oh, I'm so thankful I'm not like this publican over here. It is a waste of breath. God doesn't hear it. Paul wrote in the epistle to the Romans, He is a Jew which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart. It is that of the heart. Paul finally understood the Scriptures. He had, as a Pharisee, he had memorized vast portions of the Scripture. He had been taught them from the time he was a child. And he had sat at the feet of Gamaliel, the great teacher of the law. And yet he didn't understand the truth. The delight of his life until he was regenerated was to persecute Christians. And then when the glorious Savior opened his heart and drew him to himself, all of a sudden the Scriptures opened up. And he knew what they meant. And he said, they don't understand. I understand now. We are God's Israel. Amen. The Spirit of God opens our hearts. A Jew is one who is one inwardly. 
It's not in this. It is in the spirit and not in the letter. For the Jews to put their trust in an outward right and insist that others do the same thing was not only wrong-headed, it was evil deception. And it was confusing the Philippians. Now that Christ had come, the true Jews, the true Israel, were those who had repented of their sins and trusted Christ alone for their righteousness. And that's what Paul does. He takes these Philippians, so to speak, by the, the collar and says, Listen to me. Don't listen to them. The dogs, the evil workers, the mutilators are not God's Israel. We are. You Philippians who have repented at my preaching of the gospel to you, I was among you. No doubt the Philippian jailer uh, was a recipient of this glorious letter in Lydia who was, whose heart the Lord had opened when Paul preached. He's saying, listen, their act and their acts of keeping the law, their act of circumcision and their acts of keeping the law, do not make them righteous. We're God's Israel. What are the marks of God's true Israel? Well, he says we worship God in the Spirit. The true Israel rejoices in Christ Jesus, not the works of the flesh. We do not come and say we're Christians simply because we take part in this act or in that ordinance. We are ultimately Christians because we worship God in the Spirit. We have been changed by the Most High God. We have been converted from darkness to light. The true Israel does not rest in outward ritual as did the Jews, but in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. That's God's Israel. Amen. They also rejoice in Christ and have no confidence in the flesh. Now what does he mean by that? The true Israel has no confidence in itself. The false teachers were coming before God with all of their lavish works and ceremonies and saying we're right with God because of all of these wonderful things, our pedigree, the, the, the sacrifices we bring, the good works that we do, we've been circumcised, we're God's covenant people, we're right with God. And it is sad, brethren, but in our day, there are those who profess to be Christ's that do pretty much the same thing. They boast in their baptism, or they boast in their particular religious works, or in their denomination. Oh, we're Baptists, and we're this and we're that. We're Calvinists. We have the five points, and you don't. And the arrogance and the haughtiness comes across exactly like those who clothe themselves in their own works. Amen. Right. Jesus.
Jesus Christ alone, listen, Jesus Christ alone perfectly kept the law of God and fulfilled the requirements of the old covenant. Jesus Christ alone paid the debt for all the sins of all of God's people for all of eternity. He was and is our perfect substitute. And that is why by faith in Him, we are righteous with God, not because of any merit in our faith, but our faith is counted, imputed as righteousness, as Paul explains in Romans 4. Christ's righteousness is imputed to our account. And this is what Paul is getting at. We're not trusting in ourselves. We rejoice in Christ as our law keeper. We rejoice in Christ as our sin bearer. We rejoice in Christ as our righteousness before the Most High. And we have no confidence in ourselves, our works, our rituals. We can only rightly and truly rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ if we believe that He alone has accomplished for us the perfect righteousness that God and His holy law requires, and that by faith in Him alone, we stand perfectly righteous before the judge of all the earth. That's good news. That's good news. Do you believe that, Christ? There is your righteousness. Christians alone are the true circumcision because they, they do not trust in themselves and their abilities and their law-keeping, but have confidence in none but Christ. In the Trinity hymnal, one of my favorite hymns, Come Ye Sinners, repeats three times, None but Jesus, none but Jesus, None but Jesus can do helpless sinners good. Listen, O oh sinner. Do you see your helplessness? Do you see your helplessness? Do you see that you have no righteousness before God? None but Jesus can do helpless sinners good. But hear the voice of His gospel. Hear Him. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Stop your laboring to be right with God by your own works. Stop your laboring as you toil under the weight and burden of your sin. Look to Christ. Look to His righteousness. Look! Don't wait for some experience. Believe Him. The true Israel rejoices in Christ. And that's why they look away from themselves to the perfect righteousness in Christ. 
and they have no confidence in the flesh. Well, let us consider Paul's reason for a false hope in works righteousness. Let me explain what I mean by that. In order to show the Philippians that righteousness is found in Christ alone, Paul proceeds to give his own testimony. Paul's purpose is to make his readers understand that if anyone had a reason to believe that he could be right with God by his good works, it would be Paul himself. Now this is vital for us to lay hold of. We don't have many testimonies set forth before us in the Scriptures. But I think it's fascinating what Paul does here. Paul's purpose in this highly personal look in his past religious life as a Jew is to give a concrete example of what works righteousness looks like. He says, you want to see what it looks like? To labor and to strive and to have confidence in the flesh? I can show you what it looks like. It's what I was before Christ. One's self-righteous, self-confidence that rests in its own good works is a confidence in the flesh that leads to destruction. Oh, but it's such an attractive destruction. We feel good about ourselves. We're quite confident that we've done this or done that and now God must receive us. In a conference some years ago where I was preaching, I sat down for dinner with a young man who was a truck driver. He'd come to the the meetings and reminded me somewhat of talkative in Pilgrim's Progress. He could talk some religion. He could do some God talk. But just after a few minutes, it was clear that he he did not know Christ. And I was attempting to get him to see that. And I asked the question that many of us have done with others before. I said, if you were to die right now and stand before the Most High God, why should He permit you into heaven? I kind of thought for a few minutes and somehow or another that question seemed a little perplexing to him. Which itself wasn't a good sign. But I said, well, let me put it to you this way. If you were standing before God and He said, I am now going to send you to hell for all eternity, would He be right and just in doing so? He said, no. I got an immediate response. And I said, why? He said, because I'm not that bad. Brethren, that is works righteousness. He might not understand the term. He might not think of himself as the proud Pharisee. Oh, but he was. He wasn't that bad. Oh, dear friend, if you think you're not that bad... The Spirit of God has not yet shown you your heart. Are you that bad? Should you go to hell for all eternity? If you can say, well, no, because I'm not that bad. 
Friend, you were as proud as the most prideful Pharisee. I've done something here or there that God must take into consideration and let me in. Paul's personal testimony. Listen to me. The reason God records this for us here. Paul's personal testimony is a call for men and women to repent even of their good works. Do you see it? Think of Brother Bob when I say that. But here it is, friend. Look. Paul doesn't start off by saying, well, I used to be a whoremonger. He doesn't say that, does he? He doesn't say, well, I was a former drug addict, a former sex addict. Well, I was a biker, a former hell's angel. Well, I used to be a rock and roller. Now, that's what most of the testimony circuit is like, isn't it? And unfortunately, it almost becomes like entertainment. Very often people flock to hear about how horrible and bad. Oh, I was a former gangster. I was a former pornographer. I was a former drug dealer. And now I'm a Christian. And of course, I thank God that He does save the vilest of the vile as far as human understanding goes. But oh dear friend, that's not Paul's testimony. Paul's testimony was, I repented of my good works. Not only of our wicked and vile and detestable rebellions against God's law, but at His very best attempts to be righteous with God by His own works. He repents of them. He says, look, if any man thinketh that he hath whereof that he might trust in the flesh, I more. Now this is inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is not vain and fleshly boasting. He's saying plainly. This is like a challenge. You think you're good? You think that you should be considered right with God by what you've done and what you do? You go to church enough, you got your little gold star up there on the attendance board? Do you think you're right with God? I more so by the things that I've done. Look at my credentials. Look at my pedigree. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. What an incredible testimony. Look how good I was. Oh, verse 7, But what things were gain to me, those I counted loss for Christ. What does Paul mean when he says, circumcised the eighth day? Well, he's boasting. He's saying Genesis 17, 12 sets before us God's requirement for circumcision according to the Abrahamic covenant and later the Mosaic covenant. He that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you. 
Every man child in your generations, he that is born in the house or bought with money or any stranger which is not of thy seed. Paul's purpose in declaring, uh, declaring this is to show that his life began with obedience to the law. From its very inception, eight days old, according to the law, he was not a proselyte. He was one who came, or excuse me, he was one who was born a Jew and began his life in accordance with the Jewish law. He was the stock of Israel. All the privileges of the covenant people were Paul's from his birth. He belonged to Israel by birth, not conversion as others. He was born into the only people on earth who could boast of being God's covenant people. And he could say, I've got the mark in my body. Had it there from the eighth day. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. In Israel's history, the tribe of Benjamin was highly esteemed. Out of all of Jacob's sons, Benjamin was the only one to have actually been born in the promised land. From Benjamin's stock came Israel's first king, Saul. And that was Paul's name before he was Paul. In fact, there are those that conjecture, and that's what it is, conjecture, but it's possible that he himself was named for Israel's first king. After the monarchy of Israel broke up, the tribe of Benjamin alone was faithful to the house of David. Even the famous Mordecai, whom God used in the deliverance of Israel during the time of Esther, was a Benjamite. Paul could point with pride to his family ties in his blinding, self-righteousness. The Hebrew of the Hebrew. Paul is boasting that he's the cream of the crop, so to speak. He was an elitist among the nation of the Hebrews, a superlative example of all that it meant to be a Hebrew by birth, by privilege, and by the law of God. As touching the law of Pharisee, Paul was educated and trained in the strictest sect of Judaism as far as adhering to the law of Moses. There were the Sadducees that were like the liberals, the Pharisees who were like the conservatives. He could say, I was the strictest of the strict. The Pharisees not only prided themselves in their rigorous, rigorous, meticulous law-keeping, but they addicted themselves to the most minute traditions of Judaism. For Paul to boast of being a Pharisee here was to describe himself, as one commentator puts it, the most earnest of the earnest observers of Jewish law. Paul is boasting in his good works. Let that sink in. He says, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Because Paul was a Hebrew of the Hebrews and a zealous Pharisee. He burned with an ardent desire to keep the old covenant community pure. My people. This drove him to the furthest extremes of seeking out and persecuting the Lord Jesus Christ's people. His fiery zeal. And his single-minded obsession with the law drove him to do all that he could as an individual to exterminate the followers of Christ from the earth. 
And that's exactly what he was doing when Christ brought him in. His zeal at that point for everything that he stood for was at its zenith. And Christ stopped it. God is pleased not only to save the whoremonger, but the prideful, religious sinner. Hallelujah. Amen. As touching the righteousness which is in the law, Paul says, I was blameless. Paul had given his life to the strictest conformity to the external forms of the law. No one could look at Paul's outward life and conclude anything other than that he had kept the law as flawlessly as a human being could do. He's challenging them. Listen, he's doing this in the light, once again, of those who are coming into the Philippians who have believed the gospel and now are being turned away to consider their own works, to be circumcised and keep the law. And Paul says, you can't do it now as well as I did it. I started in it. It was all of my life. You're just getting into it. Do you think that you can be right with God this way? That same zeal and passion drove him to say to the Galatians, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who's put a curse on you? Who has taken your mind, as it were, by a spell and drawn you into this foolish thinking that having heard of the glories of the blood of Christ, hearing that the God-man bore in His body on the tree all of God's fury for all of the sins of God's people, what foolishness has bewitched you to think that you can now be right with God by mutilating your bodies and trying to keep the old covenant? No one could have faulted Paul for not achieving an outward conformity to the law. And yet he says, I count it all loss. Loss. As, as the former Pharisee says, and as he proves to us here, he was the model Jew, the epitome of self-righteous religion. Stare at it long and hard. I doubt any of us here have this kind of pedigree. And yet Paul says, I count it dung. And I, for one, believe that the, the, the King James translators were right. There are those today that just use the word for things cast off and refuse here. I think Paul, using the strong language that he did, said exactly that this very thing. I count all of that dung. For what? The excellency the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul knew that the law keeping that made any man right was the law keeping of Jesus Christ. Paul knew that there was only one circumcision that truly accomplished any righteousness 
It was Christ's. He kept the law perfectly, brethren, in thought, in word, and deed, and was the perfect substitute for each of His children. All of our sins on Him so that all of His righteousness might be ours. Amen. Praise the Lord. He says, in light of that, I repent of my good works. They're nothing but dumb. In light of Christ. Oh, brethren, I believe I will stop there this evening, not go to my last point. Let me simply draw us to a close this way. When Paul says, The excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, by the power and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as He is chained in His cell, His heart soars for joy. Paul glories in the greatness, the supreme and surpassing excellence of knowing Jesus Christ. Why? Because by faith alone in the Lord Jesus, all of His sins were washed away forever. And it didn't matter what flesh did to Him. Salvation is not a feeling that bypasses the mind. It is the deliberate resting of one's faith in the exalted, resurrected Lord and Savior as He is set forth in the Gospel and in the pages of Scripture. This is why Paul reminded the Philippians to rejoice in Christ. If they had begun to think that by their circumcision and their works righteousness with God, that they could be right with the Most High Judge, it wouldn't be very long before they were miserable Pharisees or proud Pharisees. Because you can never do enough if you have any understanding or you become prideful about what you think you have accomplished. As long as there is the slightest trust in ourselves for our righteousness, we can only remain utterly miserable because we see that we can never attain to a righteousness so high. The only other option is to remain utterly blinded in religious pride that falsely comforts us Such a one is drunk with his own self-righteousness and damned because he believes that he can earn the saving mercies of God. The sinner's only hope is the excellency of the knowledge 
of Christ Jesus the Lord. Come to Him. Flee to Him. Repent of your sins and trust His righteousness alone. And you can say with Paul, I count all things but loss. Let's pray. Holy and blessed Father, I cannot but praise and thank You for all that You've done for sinners like us in Christ. Thank You, Lord, that before the foundation of the world, You purposed that Your precious and eternal Son would become flesh, to die the death of Calvary, that your precious children might repent and believe on Him unto everlasting life. Oh, Father, would you by thy grace make those here this evening see and comprehend thy grace. And may they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ unto everlasting life. And may your children, may your children that have heard the old, old story this evening rejoice for all eternity and be refreshed in this great truth. Lord, I pray it all in thy blessed and holy name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves 
would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.